to left corner to Aguila. Aguila the left circle. Passing to Yell, a shot. Save made by Yell. Aguila, three bounds, another shot. They score! The Blades win it! Yeah, baby! They score! And the sea of red erupts. Flames talk starts now on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Here's Pat Steinberg and Logan Gordon. All right, happy Friday, and we are underway on this July 14th. Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcast. Yeah, Steinberg logo along with you from our Sportsnet 960 Doug Lacey's Basement Systems down at Town Studio. Hi, Logo. Hi, Patrick. Uh, this is uh, the final day of Flames Talk for quite mm. some time. Our Flames Talk summer hiatus begins at the end of this Friday set of shows, Friday set of hours. So um, I have been doing a great job of not mailing it in all week. I've been pretty proud of myself as to how much effort I've put into these uh, (laughs) these last five days. Uh, I tried to, I tried to put effort into this one today. Yep. For this Friday. Well, I was looking to book some guests, but a lot of people are all, I I got turned down by four people. They're all on hiatus. So uh, (laughs) that's okay. Um, But I wanted to do this uh, as it is one of our final hours of Flames Talk before we go on hiatus, uh, probably back for an LTE limited time engagement in August, but won't be back in earnest and doing multiple hours of Flames Talk per day until after Labor Day. So a good little stretch of time without uh, a ton of flames talk. I thought I'd do, I thought we, you and I, because I got to sit beside you for pretty much every flames home game. Um, And I thought you and I would be a good time to look back at the last 365 days or so for this Calgary Flames organization. How much time do we have? Well, I'm going to, we're just going to go through some of the signposts. Fair. It truly has been one of the most eventful stretches in team history. No doubt about that. I think, I think it has been the most eventful stretch in team history. Certainly since I've been uh, covering this team for the last uh, 15 years or so, 10 plus years full time on this Flames beat. We talked extensively about Johnny on Thursday. So we'll skip over Johnny because that was a, a big topic on Thursday. So let's just hit a few signposts, ask some questions here. Text lines wide open, 960, 960. You can, uh, you can absolutely get your thoughts in as many texts as we can if you're listening live on this Friday. So very shortly after Johnny Gaudreau bounced, signed in Columbus, and we knew the organization was pivoting, the news of Matthew Kachuk started to filter out. And I remember, so so the way this all played out, Matthew Kachuk was a year away from unrestricted free agency, was an RFA, needed a new contract, had a qualifying offer of $9 million on the table. And eventually what happened was the Flames qualified him and then a few days later took him to or decided to take him to team elected salary arbitration, which does not happen very often. Usually salary arb is chosen by the player, not the team. This was a team decision to go down the arbitration road, which was essentially, as we learned over time, I remember uh, talking to a gentleman chiefly involved in this that same day. I got a call from the outgoing general manager. I remember Brad Trilliving called me that day and he said, why do you think we're doing this? And I said, well, I, I, I gave him a couple theories. He's like, well, no, here's kind of what's going on. And we can't put it out there, but I just wanted you to know so that you had a little bit of a, a feel as to what was going on. And I just wanted you to know how things are playing out so you can frame it correctly when you're writing, when you're talking, so on and so forth. And event, essentially, as we would find out, Matthew Kachuk had, uh, through, first of all, his agent, Craig Oster, and then personally had told Brad that he was not going to be signing a long-term extension. He had one year left on his deal or one year left of, of being under team control. So was happy to be qualified, was happy to play under a one year, $9 million contract, but was going to go to unrestricted free agency and call his shot. So said he would be open to a trade if the team doesn't want to go down that road. And that led us to that Friday night in July. It was late July. It was a scorching hot day in Calgary. And it was Frank Saravalli who first put it out there. 
Uh, and he said Matthew Kachuk has been traded to Florida. And then it was about a good five or six minutes logo of us trying to just like, you're just constantly refreshing Twitter. Who's going to be the first person to end up with the return? I remember I texted a few people. They're like, I can't tell you. I can't tell you what the return is, but it's going to blow your mind. Like this trade is going to blow your mind when it's all said and done. And then we found out uh, it was Kachuk going to Florida with a pick, coming back in return, Huberto, Uyghur, Schwint in a first, and it real plus an eight-year extension at $10 million for Matthew Kachuk. It was the first ever sign-and-trade in franchise history. So I guess the question I would ask as we kick off our little year in review here, now that we're about a year on, is the Matthew Kachuk trade the biggest trade in franchise history? When it comes to implications, and I'm not saying positive or negative, just the entire foundation-shattering na- uh, nature of the Matthew Kachuk Florida trade, is it the biggest trade in franchise history? Yes. I, I don't have any hesitation in saying it. Uh, given what Matthews continued to do in Florida uh, in year one and going to a Stanley Cup final with them, and given the added importance now, Pat, of Mackenzie Weger and Jonathan Huberto starting those new deals with Calgary. Yep. Um, I think that that's got to be taken into account here, too, that both of them signed up long-term for the Flames, and those deals kick in this season, and their value and their importance to the team going forward with so many of these UFAs that we've talked about and we'll talk more about, their value and importance to this team going forward might be even bigger than it was when they showed up because those are two guys that you know are going to be here going forward. They're locked in, committed to being here, and I think Mackenzie Weger has the ability to be a top-pairing defenseman for this team. I know Jonathan Huberto has the skill, but can they do it? Can they be those key pieces? And who knows what's still to come with that draft pick and uh, Cole Schwinn's future. Those are two that are going to be you know, looked upon, too, when we review this trade in X amount of years. I think it's by far the biggest trade that this franchise has, has embarked on. So I'm just quickly uh, doing some uh, math. When it comes to the three NHL players that changed hands and the contracts that were signed, three players end up getting $210 million of guaranteed before-taxes money uh, on three extensions, eight times nine and a half for Matthew, uh, eight times ten and a half for Huberto, and eight times six point two five for fifty mil and Mackenzie Weger. Do the math as I did on my calculator, and it all adds up to two hundred and ten million dollars when it's all said and done. Um, that that is a massive trade, and and I think when I ask, is it the biggest trade? Because somebody texts in and says Newendike for Aginla. In hindsight way bigger trade for the franchise. It's less about, you know, what it meant for the positivity of the franchise or yes, getting Jerome Aginla in a trade with the Dallas stars was huge and obviously set this organization up on a track that they would eventually culminate in a 2004 game seven appearance in the Stanley cup final. And the Mika Kiprasov, Mark Edward Vlasic trade with the San Jose sharks, pretty important. The Doug Gilmore trade was massive in 92. Um, even the Dion Phaneuf trade and how it shook the NHL with a five, uh, I guess that was an eight player deal when it was all said and done three to Toronto, four to Calgary. But when it comes to just the overall implications and $210 million of extension money and what Matthew did in year one going even higher than the 104 points he had before and obviously what the extensions of Huberto specifically and to a lesser extent Uyghur because Uyghur's I think is right on market value. I think Huberto we look at right now is like, okay, you're worried that's a little bit of an overpay after year one, but he is... As uh, Aaron and I were talking about earlier this week, you take out, you know, if you if you take a look at it, depending on how you want to segment the years, he's a top five, top seven, or top ten scorer in the NHL over the last four, five, or six years. He's one of the most prolific players, even including last year's nightmare in the NHL. He's a top ten player over the last six years when it comes to production, even if you count in last year's nightmare. So... Just a lot of money that changed hands. You had a sign-and-trade involved. That's a franchise player that you moved out, and it put the team on a completely defined trajectory, whether people agreed with it or not, being that 
They were trying to bulk up and win now. And they were trying to be a playoff team, be a contender, try to win a Stanley Cup in a two- or three-year window is kind of what that trade signified for me. Well, and I think just the significance of being player for player and being a hockey trade for the most part, Pat, that in and of itself is what makes this deal such a unique one too because I remember having those conversations after Matthew Kachuk, after the Flames, once you you clarified for everybody – you know, that this was a move by the team for the, the team of uh, elected arbitration, that this was a, a move that was going to see Kachuk go. We were really talking about that that time. I am sure you remember it, Pat. Futures prospects, what young NHLer would the Flames, you know, covet from a team that Matthew would go to, you know, what a first-round pick would look like this year, that sort of thing. Nobody was ever projecting to see the kind of NHL talent switching sides that we saw no one was projecting okay to take a 115 point player off of Florida one of their top two defensemen coming back the the hockey trade aspect of it was something that was still to this day surprising to see because everybody when you're you're losing a guy that young you're generally talking about a futures prospect you know coming back Jack Eichel's the same sort of way you know okay you got Alex Tuck who's an NHLer there but you're you're talking about futures right uh, for the most part in those kind of deals. This wasn't that kind of trade for the Flames. This was an opportunity, I think, seen by Brad Living to sit here and say, yeah, we're going to lose a, a key piece. There's no doubt about that in Matthew Kachuk, but if we take this deal, this helps us remain at a certain level and not take as much of a dip as maybe you traditionally would when you have to trade a guy like Matthew Kachuk away. Uh, this reads, Gilmore was the same. The Flames ended up with Lehman and then Huberdo now. Both trades a bust for the Flames. I think it is too early. It's way too early to call this a bust. I will say the, the Gilmore trade was made under different, different circumstances. And I think just in terms of what it was, will go down as being worse regardless for me. Uh, of what Huberdeau and because it wasn't just Gilmore who went in that trade. Jamie McCown, who was a big part of the 89 team, went in that trade. You had Rick Natras and Rick Wamsley, who also went. And they just got a collection of guys back, plus a superstar in Gilmore. And and I know that Lehman was supposed to be that guy, but it was just a collection of guys. It was That was more like the FNUF trade, where it was like Dion and a couple of guys for four guys. And then Stajan ended up, playing more than half his 1,000-plus games as a member of the Flames, and, and that was the, the best and, and most important part the Flames got back. But they should have gotten more for a guy at that time who was looked at as still a very good defenseman in the NHL and a very uh, coveted prospect in the NHL. This reads, uh, Joe Newendike was the biggest franchise-changing and best trade. I could see that. I mean, again, when you get a Ginla, I see that. But again... Implications, yeah. implications, good and bad, and impact on salary cap, and just everything that this trade last July might end up meaning for both teams. I still think it's the biggest in franchise history. I, I, I really al- do. I would almost again. I think the Kachuk trade is the biggest one, but if you want to talk about impact overall and, and deals that change things for both sides, I think the Brett Hall trade, Pat, is is almost more influential for both sides than what the Newendike one was. Well, they don't win the Stanley Cup without, exactly. without, without the Blues trade. And, and Wamsley. Yeah. And the Blues, in turn, get a Hall of Fame, one of the best American players of all time, and Calgary goes without Brett Hall into the, their alone Stanley Cup. Right, The implications of that trade were huge. You just go on to have an 86-goal season. Yeah, no big deal. Holy. Can you imagine a human being scoring 86 goals no. in this day and age? No. I, well, I shouldn't say that, but the guy wearing 97 does some stupid things sometimes. But this it, yeah, dude, it feels this like. Dude had, this dude was a goal a game player in 1999. He had 86 goals in 78 games. That is so stupid and unheard of. That isn't even when goalies were playing with newspapers on their legs. <laughs> this was you know, had, goalies were getting good at that at this time. Point, yeah. Patrick Waugh and Martin Brodeur existed at this time. 
And he scored 86. He had 72, 86, and 70 in back-to-back years, and he had five straight years where he scored 54 or more goals. Anyway, uh, this says getting Kiprasov from the Sharks was huge. It was. Um, and when talking about Brett Hull, don't forget he is an amazing singer. So good. So good. <laughs> Uh, okay, so that was the big trade in July. Uh, then it was about, I don't know, three or four weeks later when another huge day hit for the Flames because they made two significant moves on the same day in August. On the same day, they traded, uh, they, they signed Nazem Kadri rather, to a seven-year deal at $7 million per. They also traded Sean Monaghan to the Montreal Canadiens for future considerations. They traded Monaghan and that first-round pick that they got from the Panthers to Montreal, and coming back the other way was cap space, and that cap space allowed them to sign Nazem Kadri, fit him under the cap, so on and so forth. And kind of like, because I, 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 we all know how we evaluate year one of the Kachuk trade. And I don't think we evaluate year one of that Kadri monahan swap, even though it was different, different teams. It wasn't a straight up trade. Wasn't the greatest year one on the Kadri Monahan side of things either, because Monahan, despite the injuries, had a bit of a resurgent year in Montreal when he was healthy. Kadri started like a house on fire as a member of the Flames and looked like looked like he was made to play for the team. And then it slowly went downhill. And in that second half of the season, he was for many one of the most frustrating players on the team. And so, yeah. Year one of Kadri and Monaghan's departure and all of what went into that and year one of a $49 million contract was not uh, was not A-plus either. No, it wasn't. And that was a hard one for a lot of people to swallow because I think Monaghan, despite the decline in, in production, Pat, I think still meant a lot to a lot of people here because he was that face of the, the turnaround for the Calgary Flames for the first couple of years, right? Those were really lean years. Sean Monaghan was sort of that guy that you could put some faith into and, 100%. and look to and say, look, this is what we're building here. And look at this young guy. He's got a, a net front presence and he's scoring 20 to 30 goals every year. And he's developed this great relationship with, with Johnny Gaudreau. And here's this fun excitement. And, you know, to, to always trade away a guy for nothing like that is, is hard. Uh, I, I think I remember hearing Brad talk about that one too and saying, look, this was... Never an indication on Sean. He played through so many injuries before he was 30, even last year in Montreal, still yep. going through it. And uh, for Nazem Kadri, it started great in Calgary. I don't think it could have started any better for him against his old team, getting his cup ring. Things seemed to be going so well for him in Calgary. And yeah, it didn't come without its struggles throughout the season as well, Pat. Well, and they had, I mean, if you remember correctly, they uh, they had... Kadri, Dubé, Manjapani on a line early on, and it was like again, it was like, oh my yeah, this this line is driving the bus for the Flames. Look at how good they look. Yeah, it was it was a frustrating year one, I think, when you take everything into account for Nazim and the Flames. And and I think knowing that he's an over 30 player and just starting a seven-year contract, has six years left on a big cap hit at seven mil, there was some uh, there, there's a little bit of trepidation, but I still if you if you remember at the time in August, I was a massive proponent of that signing. I thought it was a great signing. I thought it was uh, a really good fit for the team. And so because of that, I still hold out hope. As much as what, what my hopes were and what my reaction was did not pan out on the ice in year one on a regular basis, I still do hold out hope for what Kadri can be on this Flames team. Even listening to him when he joined us earlier this week and, and talked about how he's feeling rejuvenated with all of these changes. He's feeling far more excited with all of these changes. This was Nazem when he joined us earlier this week on Flames Talk. I mean, it feels uh, you know a little rejuvenating and uh, exciting is probably the proper... Uh word to use i think when there's turnaround um you know you're not quite sure with people that are coming in and coming out and uh you know it can be a little uh stressful at times but you know just me personally meeting with you know husk and connie and uh the guys that are in the head roles right now you know i got the utmost confidence in them and in the direction they're taking this team and you know obviously i've made a, a long-term commitment to the city and you know, I want to see uh, I want to see us go places. So it's uh, it's exciting for us. That was Nazem Kadri with us earlier this week. So I still hold out hope. I know this text comes in says Kadri was an awful signing. He's 32 years old, not going to get better. I think he's capable of 
better than what we saw from him in the second half of the season. And so, do I think he is a point-per-game guy? Like, he was on pace for 90-plus points that final season in Colorado when they won the Cup, if he plays the whole year. Do I think he's that? Probably not. I, think, I don't think we assumed he was that coming no, in, period. No, absolutely not. No, that's a very good point. I think, But I also think he is more than what we saw from him in the second half. When it's yes. all said and done, he goes 56-82. and 82. He was their only all-star and, and was a really important and driving force player in the first half of the year, but tailed off after the all-star game. So I think he can be a 65-point-ish player on this team. That's what I think Nazem Kadri can be and, and can be more consistent over 82 games. And if they get that from him... And if he's able to be more like that, and even at the age of 32, I still think he can do that, then I think you're going to be a whole lot more uh, content with what you see from him in year two as opposed to the final few months of year one, which were admittedly, at least admitting, admittedly on my part, yeah, they were really frustrating. You know, some of those... Some of those games where he was a non-factor, we all remember the Chicago loss, which, you know, in a lot of ways sunk there. It was the final mm-hmm. nail in the season. So that stuff can't happen again, and he needs to be better than that second-half cadre, but I think that still exists. Well, and for me, even more than the – not more than the points, but I'll say in addition to getting a little bit more out of him offensively, Pat, that's the, that last point that you bring up, the the invisible – Nazem Kadri, we need to see less of that. And one of the biggest proponents that I had of that Kadri signing coming in was that he was going to give them some of that element that Matthew Kachuk leaving left a void for the this team. edge. The edge. Yeah. There was not enough edge to Nazem Kadri's game last night. Or last season, excuse me. And how many times, even just against the Flames, I'm sure almost every single fan of a team out there can think of a moment, whether Nazem was with the Avs or with the Leafs or whatever, where he spent a game pissing your team off or you were furious at Nazem Kadri. I think of the, the Geo reverse hit uh, when Kadri was a member of the Leafs a couple of years ago and they were into it. There wasn't enough of that Naz for me last year. I don't know why that was, but you can. he's one of those guys that can impact the game when it doesn't show up on the score sheet because he can be a pain in the ass to play yeah. against. He can be a force defensively. He's not afraid to be physical. There wasn't enough of that when the points weren't there for me last year for Nazem Kadri. And to your point, I also think that that's something that he can come around with uh, again this season. I don't think the fact that he's 32 <laughs> prevents him from being, you know, a force in that sense again next season. So they go through, they 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 make the, the, the three massive days, the Gaudreau day, the Kachuk day, and the Kadri day, plus the Huberdo signing was pretty big. They re-signed a few other players. Uh, they get... Uyghur done during training camp just before the start of the season. He signs his eight-year extension, and then the season starts. Remember how good this team was to start the year? Yes. Remember, we were foaming at the mouth. It was 5-1, and one, the best six-game start in franchise history. This team looked like they could play high-intensity, up-tempo hockey. They were scoring. They were making life difficult on the opposition. They played with a little swagger. Good and they're teams off to, they beat, They too. were beating good teams. And then all of a sudden it goes off the rails. They go five and one to start best start in six games in franchise history. They lose a frustrating one to the Edmonton Oilers. I believe that was, was that not the game where uh, Markstrom came out, tried to play the puck and didn't get back in time. And McDavid beat him from the half wall. Yes. They lose that game. It was a, they didn't play poorly in that game. They lose a one goal game to an Oilers team that we know is very good. I thought it was a very even hockey game. Oilers end up coming out on top and Daryl Sutter changes up the lines and that loss turns into seven in a row and they never really felt like they got back on track. It took him until what late March to win more than three games in a row Mm -hmm. from, from that seven game losing skid in October, November to March. It took him that long to win three games and more than three games in a row. It was just, Everybody everybody felt like this thing was going in the right direction and the start was the start lived up to the hype, right? The start lived up to the hype the summer brought and then it fell completely off a cliff and they never could get it quite back on track and that just 
turned into more and more and more distraction, negativity, so on and so forth, right? It turned into the the Jonathan Huberdeau story never got itself back on track or on track. And the Daryl Sutter narrative picked up more and more steam as the year goes along. In. Yeah, Huberdeau's agent chimed in on a number of different occasions. Uh, Jacob Markstrom's story could never get quite rectified. It just, from the best start we've ever seen through six games to a season that could never get back on the rails. It was a really, really strange snap. And uh, that, that I'll always remember. I don't, do, do you remember at any, like, was there any point for you that you're like, geez, this season may not go the way I thought it was going to go. Was there any point where you started to feel like maybe this was going to be a lost season or a missed season? I don't know when it hit me that that was going to be the case. I, it might have been in December there, Pat, when they went on that trip to Columbus and then into Toronto and Montreal, the two Matthew Phillips games after the loss to Columbus. And that, to me, was kind of... the. I still went back to and to me, that was the biggest question mark. I still cannot... And I know a lot of Flames fans, when we go through this, will be in the same boat as us. The the switching of the lines after that Edmonton loss to Seven me was, games in. was the the just the the beginning of the end when we look back at it. But that to me was that stretch in December. They lost to Columbus. They lost an OT to Toronto, and then it was a shootout against Montreal. That for me was when I really started to have my doubts because Columbus wasn't a good team. We brought Matthew Phillips in. There was this added level of excitement for Matthew Phillips. He's been so good. He's leading the AHL in scoring. He gets minimal opportunity, and there was more discontent about how he was being used in the lineup, how the lineup was being put out on a day-to-day basis, and it just kind of felt like, uh, I don't know that this is going to find it. We were still at that point of, from because for me, December was the point where, all of the talk of, okay, building that chemistry, playing with new players, that should be behind us. But it wasn't. For whatever reason, this team still hadn't gelled, and they went through there. I think they came back home and lost to Vancouver. Um, they did, yep. Yeah, and and so there was four-game losing streak there, and I can't, I'm trying to remember when Markstrom said he sucked to my question in the locker room. I can't remember what game it was. I think it was the Montreal one at home. That sounds right. Earlier was, that month. So he I think it was earlier that, that month, December, December 1st. I just went and Googled, I suck at hockey, Jacob Markstrom. Yes, because yeah, I asked. Because remember, remember. He gets mixed up with Josh Anderson. Remember, he came out and yeah. challenged that. And yeah. and uh, kind of Monaghan gave it right to whoever it was. And they wasn't it Slefkovsky who scored yeah, the goal? Might have been. When, when Markstrom came out and challenged, you're like, what are you doing? They were in the black jerseys. And there is that meme of him like out by the blue line. You're like, this is not where a goalie's supposed to be <laughs> when the puck's in the defensive zone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember because I asked Jacob afterwards about the the situation because him and Josh Anderson got into it. Yeah, and that's when he gave us the nothing went on. I just suck at hockey right now. And then they went on to those lose the, that other game against Montreal, and then that whole couple of those weeks to me, I'm like, man, if Jacob's feeling this way and the rest of the team is frustrated. This is not a good recipe right now for this team. By now, you should have figured it out, and it just feels like they hadn't at that point. And that's a late time in the season to not feel like you're coming together as a team. So, you know, throughout all of that, because I, I started to get a little, like, I, you mentioned that stretch in December. That loss in Columbus sticks out to me because they were, they, they were horrid. That was one of the worst Calgary Flames performances of any iteration of a team that I'd seen in a number of years. They were absolutely putrid that night in Columbus. I remember it vividly. And that was, that was way, maybe when I f- first started to wonder to myself, okay, like maybe this team isn't as good as we thought. Maybe they're not going to turn into a high-end team. But I still felt they were going to be a playoff team. They were good enough to be uh, a wild card team all the way. And I remember exactly what game it was when I was like, I don't think this team's going to make it. It was late in the season compared to where you were. It was Feb 28. It was that home game against the Boston Bruins where oh, they played yeah. so well. They they got Linus Allmarked to such a high degree that 
That was one of the best goaltending performances I've seen from goaltender Flames or otherwise with my own two eyes at the Scotiabank Saddledome in a long time. Linus Olmark looked like he could not be beat. And I know they ended up beating him three times, but... The Flames Didn't they have like sixty shots to do that though. It was a lot. Oh, yeah. I'm I don't think go. Boston had twenty. It ended up being shots. Orlov had two after they got him, and they were 57, thinking fifty-seven yeah. fifteen. Yeah, ended up exactly. being shots on goal that night. Yeah. The President's Trophy winning greatest team in regular season history, Boston Bruins, got taken to the woodshed by the Calgary Flames. And the Flames still only got one point out of that game. Charlie McAvoy on an unbelievable play from Patrice Bergeron wins it with less than a second to go in overtime. And I just remember leaving that game, this is not coming together. This is not their year. If they could not win that game, it was one of the greatest examples of the high shot volume, low ability to finish. And look, I am a huge shot volume guy. I believe that is still one of the things that makes good teams good. You go take a look at some of the teams that ended up going deep in this year's playoffs, the Carolinas, the Floridas, so on and so forth. They were high shot volume teams, but they also were high shot volume, high quality chance volume teams. The Flames were only one of those. They could not for the life of them take those shots, take those attempts, and turn them into meaningful scoring opportunities at the rate they should. They were like in the 20s when it came to what their high-danger scoring chances were, and they were top two, three for what their shot attempts were. Whereas teams like Florida and Carolina and New Jersey all got lots of attempts, and those attempts correlated to high numbers of quality slot opportunities. And it's kind of it's kind of what was one of the things that did the Flames in all year long. What? Okay, so was there any point where you felt like Huberto wasn't going to figure it out? Because I know when it was for me. Oh, the you, first time the agent said something, I was like, this is not yeah, happening this that's year. Probably when Alan good. Walsh came out the first time and made that comment about, uh, even forget which one it was, but he basically said that you know Daryl Sutter's losing the room and a couple of other, when, when he tweeted for the first time about Huberdeau and the Flames, it's like, ah, this thing ain't getting fixed because that's not going to fly with Daryl and it's going to turn into a big story. And credit to... The Flames, they did a good job. Credit to Jonathan and Daryl. They did a good job of diffusing it as best they could. But I thought right then and there, yeah, this probably isn't getting on track for Jonathan this season. And that was late-ish into the season, too. I want to say that was about halfway through the season when that happened. So it took that long for me to think that it was probably not going to get on the rails for Jonathan Huberdeau. I don't know if there was an exact moment for me. The one that immediately comes to mind when you ask the question is, Oddly similar to yours, it's the it's when Alan Walsh tweeted about Jonathan on the left side and wanting to see him back. You know, the coach is too stubborn to play Jonathan on the left side where he had 115 points and, you know, sort of got the fan base riled up about it. That, to me, was probably the main one. But I don't know. Was there ever a point during the season where you thought he was going to get it going? Because... I don't know. He played well in the preseason. He had that one. I remember we were sitting there. A little spin move. A little spin the move zone. in the mid, yeah. uh, neutral zone and set up a great play. And I'm going, okay, yeah, that's kind of what we wanted to see. But from the regular season on, I don't know that I ever got the feeling that he was set to break out, which kind of makes me feel like I didn't have a, a set time that I thought it wasn't going to turn into the year for him because I don't know that it ever reached a peak for me either. What about Markstrom? Was there a time where... It yeah, just, when he said he sucked to me to my question in the that's locker a good, room. That's a good... Uh, that's because a good, I didn't ask him about That's a good his, demarcation Because point. I didn't ask him about his play, Pat. I didn't ask him about how he's evaluating himself recently. Jacob's one of the guys that every player I've learned this over the last year covering the team, every player handles media differently. And there are guys that look you right in your eye as a reporter and ask and answer your questions. And Jacob's one of those guys. Yeah, not only does he do that, he stares into your soul. He's, He's incredibly intimidating. He's a big man, he's and he's intense. very serious. He's intense, and he was pissed off with his own play. And I asked him about, because he got mixed up with Josh Anderson on one of the plays after the whistle, and I think they got a penalty on that play from Jacob getting involved, and they scored immediately on that power play. It was the game winner in that Montreal game. Yeah, 2 nothing. Right? And so the two moments from that game, he goes out to play the puck 13 seconds in, 
gets embarrassed, gives it to Monaghan to Slavkowski for the goal. Then he goes and gets involved with Anderson, takes a penalty, power play goal, boom, Montreal wins the game 2-1. And I asked him, what was it going on with Josh Anderson that happened? Then he goes, you know what? Nothing really went on. I just suck at hockey right now. And I went, that's not a good thing right now. Because everybody in that room grabs their phone and went right to Twitter, just like I did, and put it out. And you went and you saw the reaction from everybody in the outlet going, this is bad news because if that guy is feeling like that right now, yep. you are not in a good headspace as a goaltender. And uh, look, he, he I'll give him credit because he works his ass off. He continued to try to get better. And I think during late in the season, actually, I think the last quarter of the season or so, he looked a lot more like the Jacob Markstrom that uh, we've known here in Calgary. But for me, that was easily the point where I went something's, something's not right with Jacob here. yeah I don't I don't really think I can disagree on that front to be perfectly honest with you it was it was that it was that big a um I think I texted you as soon as it was I over I believe you did and because you, you were doing post game and I'm like you're gonna want to hear from Jacob as soon as you get the audio because he is not in a good space uh, okay, so then the year goes along. Game 81, uh, Nick Ritchie, opportunity to win the game and keep Calgary's playoff hopes alive. And Game 82 means something, and he doesn't score. Cody Glass does. Then Thomas Novak does. Season ends in the blink of an eye. Flames eliminated. It did allow us to see Matt Coronado and Dustin Wolf make their debuts at home against San Jose. And then the summer gets going. And we hear green garbage bag day or locker clean out day a couple of days after the season comes to an end. I believe it was a Wednesday. Uh, I believe they finished the year on a Monday. And they finished on a Wednesday. They finished on a Wednesday. Okay. So it was a Friday, Friday. that we end up doing locker clean, locker clean out day. You know, really good stuff from everybody. Lots of honest stuff. We don't hear from uh, Brad Living or Daryl Sutter that day. And then the following Monday, we find out that Brad True Living has stepped away. It uh, comes out on Monday. I believe the Flames released their own news that day. Brad True Living has stepped down as general manager, and uh, Don Maloney has been promoted to president of hockey operations and interim general manager, and that started just this cavalcade of news conferences that we've had all summer. Tree leaves. Daryl Sutter gets fired a few weeks later. What was more surprising to you, now that you look back at it, was it more surprising that Brad ended up walking away or that Daryl Sutter ended up getting fired? Because for me, it remains true living. Because I thought that Daryl's job was going to be up in in the air regardless of whether or not the GM stayed or not. It just felt like there was too much out there and we knew too much of how toxic it was inside that room. It just felt like the only choice the Flames had to make, whether you were the GM, Brad was the GM, or Maloney was the acting GM, it felt like something had to be done. But... Tree, I always thought was going to stay. I always felt, I go back to what Elliot Friedman said that day. Nine times out of ten, when person wants to stay and team wants person to stay, it gets figured it out. This was the one time. Tree ends up walking away, becomes the GM of the Maple Leafs. That remains the more surprising to me. I have two reasons that it's Daryl Sutter that's more surprising to me. The first one is the contract that hadn't even kicked in for two years and the amount of money that the team would have to eat. And the second reason for me that I'm so that I was surprised it was Daryl is because Tree was gone. Because I thought it was gonna come down to one or another. And I it was still a question that Eric Francis rightfully asked Don Maloney on the press conference of Daryl Sutter being fired was does this open the door for Brad Treliving to come back come back? Because there was clearly a disconnect between GM and coach. And I thought, okay, this meant Daryl Sutter had won that battle. That at the end of the day, and look, to me it was hard to to call for living a surprise, knowing he didn't have a contract going into the offseason. And knowing there had been right. so much going on. For me to say, and look, you, you make a very valid point that that you oh, know a, you. a lot has yeah, you're welcome. You're you're pretty smart. Give yourself a pat on the back. You're a you're a pretty good guy. Not too bad looking at you. You're good on the eyes. Um separate to that though, um, I just think any time that you look at a guy walking to the the edge of a contract like that, you have to wonder what's up with it, right? Like right. what's what's coming here? If there wasn't a reason for, for a contract extension to be made by now, why hasn't it happened? And I really did think that it was going to come down to Brad or Daryl. I was surprised it was both, but given the money that they had to pay out, knowing that Daryl Sutter hadn't even started 
the two-year contract extension that he had been given, and given the fact that I thought the biggest, maybe not the biggest, but one of the biggest hurdles that the team faced this year was that the GM and the coach didn't see eye-to-eye, and now that GM was gone, I thought it opened up a path for Daryl Sutter to stay as this team's head coach, and I was wrong about that. I think they made the right decision because I think that uh, there was clearly still a disconnect between the players and the coach that needed to get figured out as well, but I was still surprised that going through everything that Don Maloney did, that Daryl Sutter wound up uh, you know, having to leave the organization again with that two-year contract still in his pocket. Um, and then Conroy and Huska. Conroy gets hired first. Few weeks later, Ryan Huska gets hired as head coach. Did they make the right moves? I know, I, I, you know where I stand. I believe they did on both. I believe that all along, I felt internal was the way to go on both of these. From a because this was not the season was not supposed to go this way. And it was a nightmare, but they had just gone through an entire offseason of sweeping change. So to do that again, but this time in coaching and executive areas, I felt like that wasn't the most productive way to go about it. You had Craig Conroy, who had paid his dues and, and had been ready for this for quite some time. You have the right guy right at your fingertips. Why go outside the organization when Craig Conroy had been working for this and ready for this and, and been building to this for 12 years? And Ryan Huska, very, very well-respected inside that locker room, has coached and won at every level, was extremely successful at his job and and his areas of expertise in his five years as an assistant. The blue line and the penalty kill were amongst the best attributes of the Flames over those five years and three different head coaches. It was always constant blue line strong, penalty kill strong. Those are Ryan Huska's areas of expertise. So, yeah, and they made the right move on both of them as much as there were some who felt like internal was the wrong way because they felt like this was something that, that needed to get completely blown up because they I knew they weren't doing that. We all knew they weren't going to blow it up. So I, I, I really do feel staying internal and going with Craig and going with Ryan was the way to go. Well, I, I think there was that natural fear pad of, of continuity means the same, right? That... Craig Conroy was a product of Brad Treliving and that Ryan Huska was a product of the failed coaches before him that were head coaches. And most recently, and most Darryl recently, Sutter. Daryl Sutter. Yeah. That is, I, I think, I don't think that's fair to either of those guys who I fully believe are their own people and have their own mindsets, regardless of who they worked under before. Um, and I think that you have to, fully give the credit look if it wasn't going to be calgary it was going to be somewhere else regardless of how things finished with Treliving and with sutter doesn't change the fact that craig conroy and ryan huska were both ready for bigger opportunities it just so happened that they both were in calgary at the time that the next logical spot for them became open in the franchise and yes it does it feel like coincidence sometimes sure is there a bar a bit of that maybe but The fact of the matter is Craig Conroy and Ryan Huska, as you said, Pat, have both put in more than enough time at every level of this organization to have earned this opportunity. We cannot judge whether or not the the signings and the, the moves that they make will be successful until a much later date. But I have no problem, given the resume, given the work that they've put in, and given what we've heard and seen from both of them, that they're going to be the type of people the Flames need to get this thing back in a direction that they want it to go. Yep. Because there's no, there was no handouts in this. There was no, just because they were internal options doesn't mean that they were easy options or that they skipped some part of the process just because they had a contract with the Calgary Flames before. There's none of that here. Craig Conroy, name a part of hockey ops that Craig Conroy hasn't done as a part of the assistant GM. I'll wait because there isn't any. Ryan Husko worked his ass off from the WHL to the American Hockey League to the NHL and is deserving of a head coaching spot. Both of them have put themselves in that spot. It's just, I think there's that natural progression and a natural negativity when the last people in those spots were involved in it. You sit there and you go, oh, well, how's, how's Craig any different than Brad? Well, you'll never know unless you give Craig the opportunity to be different than Brad. And you don't know. You and me don't know how Craig's felt about many different situations until you're the guy that gets to feel 
your hand on the trigger and gets to make that final call, you don't know. Your opinions can matter, and they can absolutely have an impact on what that person who makes the decisions do. But you can't judge Ryan Huska off of Daryl Sutter, and you cannot judge Craig Conroy off of Brad Schliving. It's way too soon for any of that to happen. A few more texts at 960-960 as we wrap up our little year in review here. Uh, this says, remains to be seen on the head coach. Well, yes, absolutely. And Conroy. Exactly. I'm, the big, I, I'm the biggest Craig Conroy fan on the planet. I still don't know if he's a if he's I have a, no idea. I have no idea if he's a good general manager yet because I think he will be, but he's been on the job for two months. I don't know if he I don't know what Craig's tenure is gonna be. I I really for because I, I, I am such a large fan of the human, I hope that he ends up being a really good general manager. But I don't think Craig knows if he's a good GM yet no. because it's two months into no. the tenure. You have no idea. And you can only go off of what you've heard from the guys, right? And what have you heard from Craig? We want people that want to be in Calgary. We want to make sure that we're giving an emphasis to youth and opportunity. In the, sound like good things to me. Can you follow up on them? Let's see. Uh, this says both Craig and Huska were finalists with other teams recently. So it's not just the Flames who are high on them. Good point. Uh, this says respect Huska's stuff, but blue line and penalty kill uh, excelling starts with Tanev. Yes, he has been. But Tanev's only been here for two of the five years or three of the five years. Prior to that, penalty kill blue line was pretty, pretty strong. strong. Uh, this from Murray. At the time, I felt the season could have been saved if there was a coaching change in February. Do wonder if, if something gets now in hindsight, if a decision were to be made earlier, what would have happened? Would have been very interesting. Pat, Logo, along with you. Little Flames Talk, year in review as we continue this hour from the Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studio. Do you have cracks in your walls, floors, or ceilings? Visit dlbasementsystems.com for a free estimate. They are all things basementy. This is Flamestock. Join the conversation at 960-960. Sportsnet 960 The Fan. All right, this hour rolls on. Not uh, not very well segmented. A very, very large first part. Quick little reset. And a short uh, a short second part of this hour of Flamestock. Logo Steinberg with you on a Friday. Still a lot of things that need to be figured out over the next, say, 10 months or so between now and next offseason. But more importantly, a lot of these things, a lot of these things could be be nice to be figured out between now and, say, the end of August. Uh, Just a quick update as we wrap up this hour. The penultimate Flames Talk Hour before the summer hiatus. One more still to come. Um, Noah Hannafin. Status quo on that. Nothing's really changed there. I think Noah Hannafin still has the best chance of being traded this summer. I still think Noah Hannafin is the best chance to be playing elsewhere to start next season because I think Noah Hannafin's the guy that they are most actively shopping right now. I don't think that they are saying, give us anything. They clearly aren't. Craig Conroy and the Flames want a haul of a return for Noah Hannafin. But Noah's the guy that we all believe his been most adamant that in a very professional friendly way but saying that he's not going to be re-signing here at the end of his contract he will be looking for another place to play when his current deal comes to an end so in saying that moving him makes the most sense right now not guaranteeing it'll happen this summer but I do think that that is the guy that they've got the best chance of moving between now and the start of training camp so that's where things stand right now but as we've said earlier this week they've got a price they're sticking to that price as they should they have got exactly the target that they want in a return for Noah Hannafin so until they get that they're not going to move him but yeah I think he's the guy that they are actively trying to move the most right now and we'll see if something ends up getting done to me, he re- remains the top priority that because we know sort of his direction already and what he said about his future with the team, Pat, and I'll keep going back to it. There isn't a better option out there for a team looking to make a splash on their blue line than Noah Hannafin. If there is a team that feels they have unfinished business on the defensive side of things and want to make things happen, given his salary, given what he brings to a, a decor, I think Noah Hannafin has a lot of value out there, and, and I know it's it's hard to be patient, but we're sitting here you know, in July uh, with a lot of time left before we get to training camp and get into uh, you know 
different arenas for, for the beginning of the season, I think there's still lots of time for, for something to happen there. Uh, Elias Lindholm, status quo there too. I have no idea when that's going to be figured out. I really don't. I don't know. I don't know when Elias is going to make his decision. Uh, I don't know if the Flames have imposed an internal deadline. I think they should, but I don't know when that's going to get figured out. Um, I think that the way to go about it is to have an internal deadline, and if you still don't have an answer from him by that internal deadline, maybe you nudge one more time and then move into a trade stance. But as of right now, they're not pressing him, and nor, nor do I think they should be pressing him on July 14th. Michael Backlund, I am fascinated to see how this one plays out because as of right now, the offers are soft on Michael Backlund and there is zero reason to take a bad offer or to make a bad trade. You should you should be getting... Michael Backlund was a top six Selkie Trophy vote-getting player again. He's coming off a career year. He's got one year left on a reasonable contract. He would make any team that he goes to better right now. This is not Sean Monaghan, a broken player from a year ago. They had to switch the deal with and this is also not a situation where Craig Conroy is desperate for cap space Michael Backlund isn't a cap dump Michael Backlund is not a guy that you're moving just so that you can free up space elsewhere he's a player that you'd be moving to bring assets back because you don't think he's going to be here beyond the end of his contract if you're not going to get those types of assets it's those teams losses keep the guy see if he has a change of heart and wants to re-sign or see if you can move him for something good at the deadline which I think you could or at the very worst and I don't think this is a bad thing to happen he walks away at the end of his contract so yeah I don't think the offers are are great on the backland front right now and so don't trade him he, he's too valuable to you even next year to trade him away for a song wait until the offers start to get where they should be on Michael and then you can move him because otherwise it makes no sense he's way better to you here and maybe as a deadline chip or maybe as a change of heart then he is just trading away for nothing. Can I ask you something before you uh, venture off into another European vacation? What's that? How many of those guys are still members of the Flames by the time you come back? Of the six? Yeah. I'll say four. You think two gets done in the next six weeks as you're gone? Or at least, so it has to be, I, I will say by, by the end of August, at least four. Okay. Sorry, at least two will get done, yeah. rather. There you go. That's your update. That'll do it for this hour. Logan Gordon, Pat Steinberg, Taylor, Shan, Garrett, all behind the scenes. And we've been coming at you from our Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studio. Worried about radon? They install custom mitigation systems to reduce your risk. To find out more, visit dlbasementsystems.com for a free estimate.